This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. You've downloaded episode 274 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This episode with Captain Alan Kane is brought to you by Traeger. The Snow Whites are headed down to North Carolina in a couple weeks. What better way to get all the local information on how and where to fish than with the area's most regarded fly fishing guide? Captain Alan and I will discuss all things coastal North Carolina with a bit of Louisiana thrown in. We'll talk all about small flounder to huge sharks, the predatory nature of how redfish feed, realistic versus impressionistic flies for redfish, and sunglass lens choices. Further, we'll discuss why you need to learn to double haul, how to make a good back cast, and how to manage your line all while throwing 40 feet of fly line with accuracy before you hire a fly fishing guy. Alan has stories about how there's always bigger fish out there than the one you just caught, and we'll finish up with a story you had to be there to believe. This episode is brought to you by Traeger. Welcome to the Traeger hood. Traeger is all about bringing wood-fired flavor right to the table. No matter which grill you go with, Traeger's 6-in-1 ability means you can grill, smoke, bake, roast, 
braise, and barbecue your way to pure hardwood flavor. Our current favorite things to make are smoked mushroom sauces for smoked flank steaks and armadillo eggs. Armadillo eggs? So that's when you take a jalapeno popper and you wrap it in sausage and then you wrap that in bacon and then you coat it with barbecue sauce and then you smoke it for a couple hours. Just that alone is going to make you want to buy a Traeger. Visit TraegerGrills.com for more information and contact me for any recipe suggestions. Do not accept food cooked in an oven or on a backyard grill ever again. Alan Kane, where are you currently at the moment? I am at home in Wilmington, North Carolina. Okay. And are you a native to North Carolina? I am originally up near Greensboro, North Carolina, in a little town called Reedsville, kind of in the middle of nowhere, a little farming town. I just, I use Greensboro when I explain the location because it's the only place anyone would know. But I moved down here to Wilmington, went to college here, and that's what kind of got me to the area. What was your studies while you were down there? Uh, I got a business degree. Okay. You know, I grew, on, grew up coming to Carolina Beach, um, just below Wilmington, since I was a little kid. My grandparents had a place down here, so I kind of knew the area. Wilmington was a great school, you know, living at the beach and all the water opportunities was too tempting. Nice. All right, so uh, typical question for the podcast, do you have a celebrity doppelganger? Anyone ever stop you on the street and say, hey, man, you look like... No, not that I can ever remember, actually. However, funny story, there's a a buddy of mine in the Florida Keys. um, His name's Adam DeBruin. Adam and I both spend a few months in Louisiana guiding every winter as well. And we were both flying home for Christmas last year at the airport. And we, <laughs> we were at the, um, at a little restaurant there in the, in the airport. And, and I walk up to the counter and the lady looked really confused. And she kind of like gave me this look and asked, you know, kind of why I was back. And for a minute, I couldn't understand what was going on. And, and I realized that Adam was at the same place and he was just standing on the other side of the counter there and, she thought that we were the same guy. So it's kind of funny. Two fishing guides look pretty similar. We all kind of look the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Growing up, did you have any nicknames based on your surname? Being in North Carolina, did anybody call you Hura? Can- uh, Lido, Candy, possibly Sugar? Uh, no, actually, not that I can remember. Although I had a lot of buddies who when I was first getting into the God business that liked to make fun of um, my last name and adding some stuff to it to, for like fishing charters, like hurricane fishing charters or cocaine fishing charters. <laughs> yes. I mean, so, with my last name being like Snow White, I mean, I, I got to ask other people's livelihoods and, and their names. <laughs> Twice today I had to explain it was a real name. <laughs> That's Someone's funny. like, there are not two W's? I'm like, yeah, no, it's just one. That's hilarious, Yeah. All right. And how has life been during COVID? What's it been like for you since March, just with your fishing career, general lifestyle, daily life? You know, so, you know, I've been in this business for about 10 years now, and I will say that this year has definitely been as kind of as challenging as year one. I mean, I, you know, I had a lot of cancellations at first. You know, I fish a lot of older guys who travel here to fish. And a lot of guys who have vacation homes here that didn't want to leave, you know, their home state to come here. So it was a little off at first. However, luckily for me, I'm kind of an obsessive turkey hunter. I'd probably give up fishing and everything else before I gave up turkey hunting. So You called that 
question at the end. I have... No, I was going to say, what would you do if you weren't a fisherman? But, okay, so turkey hunting. Yeah, so, well, you know, with the whole COVID stuff, it just so happened to coincide with turkey season. So having a lot of days off didn't really bother me as much since it's not my busy season in, like, March and April. So, you know, personally, it was actually a good thing. I got to travel, turkey hunt quite well, travel and stay with buddies and, you know, hunt some other states. Didn't visit anybody older, didn't get to see family members or anything, which I normally do. So from a personal perspective, it was actually good. Gave me a lot of free time. From a business perspective, definitely cost me some business. Made for a challenging spring. But now I think people are, you know, tired of being stuck at home and it's it's wide open. I don't have another open day for, I think, the rest of this month and half of August. So good for you. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy now. Nice. Very cool. Anything in particular you stocked up on when you knew we might be stuck at home for a while? You know, I say one of the best investments I got last year was I, I bought a freezer for my garage. So I, I definitely stocked up and on a lot of frozen foods and waters and stuff. You know, being in a city where we used to have hurricanes every year, I've learned to prepare for everything like that. So I was pretty well stocked for the most part. You know, being, you know, hunting all my life, you know, I definitely had a lot of wild game in the freezer too. So I was pretty... I was pretty prepared for this little pandemic, although there was, it was definitely annoying not being able to go out and grab food whenever you wanted it. The convenience of, you know, restaurants and stuff, you know, living in Wilmington, we have a lot of chicken thighs are hard to come by the last couple of days. You know, what's funny is we actually have a really big chicken company, not far from Wilmington. And they actually brought trucks down and were selling it. It was like a dollar a pound. You could buy it in 40 pound increments of chicken breasts and chicken thighs. So we definitely stocked up on that. I've got enough chicken to last a while. <laughs> Very cool. But yeah, now things are you know starting to open up a little bit more, going out to eat or getting food delivered. I'll tell you, Uber Eats has been the greatest invention ever. <laughs> we have little robots down the street that can deliver food. We're just outside their territory, but in downtown Fairfax, Virginia, there are little like R2-D2 drones that go down the street and they stop at intersections and they wait and they... They, it's the weirdest looking thing. They've got three or four wheels at each side and a couple antennas and some lights. And they will show up at a restaurant and the lid just opens. You put the food in, and you close it, and then it just goes to the person's house. Oh, that's awesome. We yeah. definitely do not have that yet. Or it's at least I've never seen it them. here. They just I can go imagine. right past you. <laughs> All right, so how did you get into fishing? You know, growing up in a little small town, North Carolina, obviously not a lot to do there. It sounds like a country so, song. Fish, exactly. Seriously. Fishing and hunting were, you know, my life basically growing up. Lots of farm ponds, local lakes, family vacations to the beach. We'd come down here three or four times a year. Grew up fishing the beaches and the piers. And back when I was a kid, you could actually ride four-wheelers out on the on the beach here, uh, one of the beaches. And so I grew up doing that a lot. What got me into the fly fishing game was spending a lot of time in the North Carolina mountains up around Cherokee and Smoky Mountain National Park area, you know fishing with my grandpa and he wasn't much of a fly fisherman definitely hardcore spin fisherman growing up in a small town you go trout fishing you kill the trout <laughs> was definitely one of the kids walking down the trout stream with the stringer attached to me with all the trout but little by little you know i started getting um into the fly fishing game you know seeing guys up there fly fishing kind of piqued my interest a little bit and we had a little tackle shop in our hometown that mostly carried conventional fishing equipment and and hunting gear, and I'll never, I think I was around 10 or 11 years old, I got a little Fluger 
five weight um, combo. I'll say that that rod is probably the same diameter as most 12 weight rods now. It was definitely, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I grew up taking that thing to the North Carolina mountains and, you know, my grandparents' place was about five minutes from the Cherokee reservation. So I could literally walk down the street and be on the reservation waters and just fish every day. And then once I grew up a little bit and got my driver's license, I was able to kind of venture up into the national park on my own and do a lot of that stuff. So that's what really got me into the fly fishing world was the North Carolina mountains. Did you ever fish this yaller hammer? Uh, I remember that slightly, but I honestly, I haven't been trout fishing since uh, 2013. <laughs> the saltwater, the saltwater game is kind of, yeah, taking over my life. You know, from where I'm at in North Carolina now, I could drive an extra two hours from what it would take me to go to western North Carolina, and I could be in South Florida catching tarpon and snook. So, yeah. Saltwater species typically went out over every time I travel. I would definitely go tarpon, all that, little brook trout. I'm going to go tarpon. and So you, do you have them up? We'll get into your species in a bit. We'll just keep talking. So how did you become a guide after business school, growing up fishing, getting into fly fishing, possibly fly tying? What made you decide, you know what, I'm going to try and put some cash in my pocket doing this. Well, it, it, it honestly kind of happened by accident. I was, you know, I, went, I moved here, went to school here. A lot, of, a lot of friends went to schools here as well. And coming here all my life, I knew there were lots of fishing opportunities, but I didn't really know as much about salt marsh in particular, mostly from the piers and the beaches uh, or the inlets, places that I had easy access to on foot. And, you know, when I first got here, I, I got a little kayak. I saw some guys kayak fishing and I I found this little kayak and I bought it. Kind of allowed, opened up a lot of opportunities for me my first year here. Got to explore a lot. And what I'll say about the kayak is it, it really forces you to learn a small area. It's not like you can just pick up and run 10 miles away really quickly. It really taught me a lot that first year. And um, I had a little, I had a job at a little outdoor store here called Great Outdoor Provision Company. And they mostly have a variety of, you know, outdoor equipment from hiking, backpacking, kayaking. And they had a fly fishing section, what really kind of drew my interest there. The guy that managed the store, he was really hardcore fly fisherman. Uh, one of my other buddies that worked there, he was really hardcore fisherman as well. And it kind of grew from there. From the kayak, I, I ended up, got lucky and managed to find a little skiff. Now, I will say it was um, far from ideal. It was very small, had a polling platform. It was definitely falling apart, but it worked for those first few years while I was in school here. So every minute that I wasn't in class or at the shop working there, I was on the water. I'd be lying if I say I didn't skip a lot of class <laughs> to go on the water on the nice days, which could be the reason it took me five years to get out of school here. <laughs> it does. It really does. You know, be having a university about four miles from the beach was very tempting. Riceville Beach in Wilmington, you know, is the biggest city, biggest coastal city in our state. There's a lot going on here, especially, you know, late spring, summer, and early fall. But long story short, you know, I went to school here, fished every day I could. And when it came time to, you know, really consider what I was going to do after school, where I was going to go, I didn't really want to leave Wilmington. Everybody I graduated with, all my buddies, they all had to, you know, to get a good business job. You're not going to find one in Wilmington because somebody with more experience was going to beat you to it every time. You know, everybody wants to live here. So... I knew I was going to have to move to like Raleigh, Charlotte, Greensboro, one of the bigger cities. Yeah. And I just didn't want to leave. Yeah. I didn't want to go to an office job right away. You didn't so, want to get sued. 
Exactly. So, you know, talking to some buddies, I knew to ran some fishing charters, mostly, you know, conventional light tackle and some offshore guys. And, you know, they mentioned they could send me some overflow trips. So I kind of just decided to get my captain's license and see how it would go. And that first year, you know, it was definitely a struggle. You know, working in the shop, I'd pick up some trips here and there, people passing through and some overflow trips for some buddies. And at first, I kind of figured it was one of those things I'd do for like a year or two. And then I would go the, the business route and or the conventional business route, I should say. You know, after a couple of years, it got it got really consistent. I started getting a really good client base, good repeat base. That's one of the benefits of our town is we have, you know, a lot of year-round residents, but we also have a lot of tourists that come in and have vacation homes here or just come to vacation in general. Guys come back year after year with their family, and, you know, it just kind of got to the point where I had a really good repeat base. And I, I don't know, time just flew by, and I think March this year was 10 years in this business. So it's, um, it's went by quick. So we started around the same time. I started doing this full time in spring of 2010. Yep, same here. It's it's good now. I mean, I can't complain. You know, I, there's a lot of, and I'm sure we'll get into the technical details of our fishery, but there's a lot of things that if I could change, you know, I might not have stayed here. I might have moved a little further south in this business. I may have went maybe Charleston or somewhere a little further south, and I'll kind of explain that later. What I mean by that. Overall lifestyle, I love Wilmington growing a lot it gets super crowded in the summer holiday weekends are a disaster but overall it's it's a great place to live great place to vacation we have a lot of variety of fishing and water types from white sandy beaches and sandy marshes to pluff mud oyster bank um, shorelines in the rivers so a lot of variety here just definitely nice keeps things interesting so i'm not going through the same routine every single day very nice and while we're on the subject of wilmington who's got the best sandwich in wilmington oh man let me think here um best sandwich do you you mean like burger type sandwich or seafood just sandwich something you can hold between your hands with crusty bread and you can bite into man i'll tell you i i'm I, I, there's a place here called pt's burgers I just love their burgers. They have a couple places spread out around town. I went there in college like three times a week. It was a great place. I know one of the guys that owns one of the one of the shops, one of the restaurants here, I mean, right up the road from me. And honestly, I, I call in a to-go order there very often. It's a great place. They have some um, fresh PT's cut fries. old-fashioned grill? That's exactly right. All right. I am putting that on Google Maps. It's a very simple burger, simple fries, but it's really good. I, I definitely. I definitely go there a lot. And is it worth, because we're doing this because we're headed your way in a week or so, is it worth going to Kinston to stop at Chef and the Farmer for maybe like a takeout lunch? You know, I've never been there. Kinston's about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 45 minutes north of me. So I've, I've never been there, actually. I do like that show. Do you ever watch it on PBS? I, I have not. Never seen it. It's pretty cool. It's taking southern local heritage ingredients and modernizing them into, like, Manhattan-style, like, cuisine. Okay. And, yeah, the show's pretty cool how, how she and her husband basically revamped this entire town by putting a little local restaurant in. That's funny. I've, I've never heard – or maybe I have and I just don't remember, but I'm going to have to check that out the next time I drive through there. Yeah, when there's, like, a cold, rainy Saturday and I got nothing to do in the winter, I'll sit down and watch, like, three episodes. 
<laughs> okay, I'll check that out. I was flipping through one day, and it was the bourbon episode. And I was like, mm, all right. And then they're like, up next, the uh, the peppers and then the trout. I'm like, I'm sold. I'm recording the whole series. <laughs> you said it was on PBS? PBS. Okay, I'll check She's that got out. got a then. new one we haven't sat down to watch. We haven't really sat down as a family in about two months to watch anything except Hamilton. <laughs> My daughter's on a movie kick. We're letting her watch things she shouldn't be watching. So a little dirty dancing. I'm sure they run out of stuff to watch with the COVID stuff going on. My goodness. Now we're all about the Babysitter's Club on Netflix. You're I'm not sure I've ever seen that either. <laughs> You're not missing much. All right, so let's talk about your fishery. Let's, how about we'll do seasons and the species available. So you say you leave around wintertime. So what, what is your, your on-season in the Carolinas like? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm in North Carolina um, about nine months out of the year. About five or six years ago, honestly, I can't even remember now, I, I started going to Louisiana. Um, I went down with a buddy one year for about a week, and we just kind of fun fished it. And um, I realized just how easy that place is, especially when you come from an area on the East Coast where you have to earn every fish. And I, some of my buddies, you know, they'll give me hell for saying this, but fishing in Louisiana makes you a lazy fishing guide. It is the easiest fishing you will ever experience compared to anywhere on the East Coast. So um, once I experienced that, I started spending a few months down there um, taking some of my clients that I fish here in North Carolina. And it's kind of grown from doing a, you know, a month to a month and a half to doing three months there every year. A couple of years, I actually did a couple of months in the spring as well. So I did five months. To get back to North Carolina, I do, I am here from February through the end of October. And then I do Louisiana from November through January. But you, in North Carolina, rental down there, you take your boat. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I take my boat. Um, there's a lot of transient guides in Louisiana in the winter. It's kind of like how the keys are. are. Keys to um, Montana, Montana. To the yeah, Gulf. exactly. It's funny. A lot of Florida keys and a lot of Florida panhandle guys go there. Some guys have been doing it for well over 10 to 12 years um, traveling there to do it. But I rent a place down there with a buddy of mine from the keys and then another buddy from Texas. Uh, there was another guy from North Carolina who used to go, but he just got married and had a kid, so he's he's not going lately. <laughs> I'm guessing there's no ring on your left hand. There's not. Not what yet. What does the kitchen and bathroom at this place look like? You know, we <laughs> well, where we are down there, if if anyone's ever been to Hopedale, Louisiana, it Hope, is Hopedale? Hopedale, Louisiana. Okay. It is in the middle of nowhere. It's about forty five minutes from New Orleans. It looks so like the, there's the, just one road of buildings. It, it is, exactly, right on the canal. How do you spell, pronounce Y-S-C-L-O-S-K-E-Y? You know, I, I've always wondered that, but I think it's Isklosky. We actually stay right next to the water tower that has that name on it. I just refer to the whole area as Hopedale. It's much easier. Yeah, there's not a whole lot down there. There's not. That's it's a, a lot it's of a, water. There's a lot of commercial crabbing, shrimping, and oystering there. It's a very um, real tight-knit community down there with all the commercial guys. And they're pretty friendly overall. You know, we've been going there for a while, renting the same house, and they're always super nice. You know, we can walk across the street and get some fresh seafood from some of those guys. So it's kind of nice in that regard. But it's definitely, um, it's definitely in the middle of nowhere. And I started getting a house with these guys. The first few years, I rented a little camper there, and then I got a house with a couple other fishing buddies, one in particular who's been renting the same house for like eight years or so. So it's a it's a two-bedroom, two-bathroom trailer on stilts, basically. Um, everything down there is basically trailers or small houses on stilts. It floods a lot, and 
according to one of the locals I talked to there, after Katrina, they didn't build a lot of stuff back, or a lot of the houses and, you know, little businesses there. So everything is basically on stilts, and if it falls down, they just put another one right back up. So it's a since I've been going there, there hasn't been, um, at least the place we stay at, it's still standing. Now, there are some nights when the wind is gusting to 30 to 40. It's, it'll wake you up. You can, you can sometimes put a glass of water on the table, and you can watch the water move in the glass when the That's wind gusts. Dark. Yeah, it's, it's a little interesting, to say the least. What if a T-Rex is actually out there, and you guys are like, it's just windy? Well, <laughs> I think um, being in the middle of nowhere, there's often, um, put it this way, we sometimes shoot guns off the back porch, so we're not really worried about much going on. And awesome. I'm pretty sure every local down there has gun at all times. So, um, <laughs> we're going to have to do a podcast this winter with everyone hanging around the Skype. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of days where we have some bad weather, and we're just sitting around the trailer watching the wind blow, so we could definitely do one of those. Nice. But yeah, so, you know, doing the red fishing stuff there, you know, it's, it's an amazing fishery. You know, after three months there in the middle of nowhere, I'm definitely ready to get back to the East Coast. You know, New Orleans is awesome. Lots of great food, lots of great nightlife. You know, a lot of guys <laughs> come down to fish, and they have a few wild nights, and uh, they show up really late the next day. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, so, I, learned, uh, I learned a while ago, hangovers are not acceptable. Even if I'm not fishing, I never want to have a hangover again. Oh, yeah, it's been exactly. almost two years for me. Oh, wow, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, so we're down there. We rent a trailer. Um, there's three of us in the trailer. It's it's pretty nice. We all get along. We're all good buddies. We all come from three different states. And most of the local guides there, you know, I've been fishing there about as long as some of the local guides. There's again, some guys have been doing it significantly longer. But most all are pretty friendly. Um, we talk a lot at the ramp. You know, I think some of the animosity between guides, between the Florida and Louisiana guides, because they show up in each other's places year round where I only see them for about three months out of the year. So it's not quite as big of a deal. But, yeah, I highly recommend going to experience New Orleans. Um, They have a great – you know, I'm only there in the winter, but they have a great year-round fishery. You know, it's really promoted as a – originally as a wintertime fishery. Everybody thinks you need to go in the winter. I know my local Louisiana buddies will appreciate this. Give them a little shout-out here. But, yeah, the summertime fishing there is awesome as well great chances at you know giant tailing, tailing redfish and black drum and they have a really good jack creval fishery there in the summer as well do you ever uh, do the wrecks or not wrecks um, i'm thinking of like oil rigs rigs you no know, i've never done it every year i say i'm going to block off some days and go do it but the the business side of me gets greedy and i book every single day that i'm there and what a just don't have time to do it yeah it's um you just and most of the offshore fishing takes place out of Venice compared to where we are. Venice gives you better access to the Gulf and deeper water. We're kind of tucked up in the marsh a little more. It's a couple-hour drive from where we are. So we I've never done it, but I've heard it's amazing. I've got some buddies who have done it. The tuna fishing on the oil rigs, rigs is really great. One of these days, I'll get down there and do it. There's a great picture of Ross Purnell from Fly Fishing Magazine holding a huge tuna on the edge of a boat with just this like flames coming out of an oil rig behind him. That's oh, that's a awesome. Very cool picture. Yeah, it's definitely high on my list. I, one of these days I'll get down there and do that. I want to experience it. But again, it just goes, I just, you know, being a fishing guide and, you know, being there for work, I just book every single day and my only days off are bad weather days. But yeah, going back to it, it's, if you ever get a chance, go experience New Orleans year round fishery. You can go catch all the slot size redfish you want. If it's a tough weather day and you can't find the bigger fish, but 
the oil draw there is going to sight cast those 20 to 40 pound fish in you know one to three feet of water and what's the did, when the clouds come in does that really screw things up i've heard this it, from clients yeah it does i mean honestly if, if i'm sure you've experienced this but if you've done the saltwater fishery clouds are your worst nemesis in the saltwater game. i mean wind is actually pretty bad too don't get me wrong but clouds kill visibility but you know if you've got a 25 pound fish in a foot and a half of water there are often times that you can either see his back or you may see a tail or a head wake. You know, there's a lot of little things that kind of give them away. So you can catch them in the clouds, but what's a real killer is when you've got a 20 to 25 mile an hour wind and cloud cover, it becomes tricky. If the fish is tailing, you're good. But other than that, it's, um, <laughs> it makes for a challenging day. Having been in this business for 10 years, that if I've learned anything, is to always bring a couple of spin rods on the boat. Because when you travel that far and you get desperate enough, no matter how hardcore of a flying lure you are, sometimes when it comes down to leaving fishless, picking up that spin rock can save the day some days. It, it's, it's a special place. You should definitely go experience it. And the food down there, I will say, is second to none. Um, it's easy to get caught in a tourist-type you know, restaurant that's just fried everything. But that's if you style. look around... Yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong, some of that's great, but yeah, if you look around, there's a lot of great restaurants in New Orleans, a lot of great Cajun food. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. But yeah, to go back to it, you know, I do three months there, and then the rest of the year I'm here in North Carolina in Wilmington. I fish all of the surrounding beaches from Topsail Island to Oak Island. So that's about 70 miles of coastline. I live near Wrightsville Beach, so... Living kind of in the center allows me to trailer my skiff north or south, depending on where people are staying, time of year, weather, you know, all that, all those factors. All right, let's talk um, about your job and the species and, and how everything operates. Yeah, so, you know, I've got two different boats uh, I run, and, you know, having two boats gives me a lot of flexibility. You know, I can do, I have a, a flat skiff, um, a Hell's Bay flat skiff that I fish the marsh with. Um, with that being said, I've ran it six or seven miles out in the ocean on nice days, but typically our main target here are redfish. From a sight fishing, fly fishing perspective, redfish are the number one target. I think redfish are probably the number one inshore target up and down the east and Gulf Coast, honestly. But we have a year-round red fishery here. I've caught them before when the water temp was, I think, 47 and then I've caught one. We got one last year. It was 94-degree water temp. Ew, so, gross. yeah, you can catch them in a, in a huge range, water temp range. You know, our summer, I'd say our prime season, business-wise and fishing-wise, is usually May through October. But some of my best days ever, red fishing, have been in the wintertime. Everyone always asks, when's the best time to come? When's the best time to come redfish? Well, <laughs> short answer, when the weather's good. Uh, long answer, you know, if I had to narrow it down, I would say summer and fall just because weather is more consistent, fish are more aggressive, lots of bait around, and it gives you a lot of a variety of opportunities at other species if the redfish don't cooperate. 
But the real draw with our winter fishery, and this kind of same here as it is in South Carolina, Georgia, and North Florida, in that our water gets super clear in the wintertime. It'll be Florida Keys clear in some places, like gin clear on white sand flats. So it makes for awesome sight fishing as long as you have the right weather conditions. And here in North Carolina, it can be 75 degrees in January, or it can be 25 degrees. Sunlight is a major player in the redfish in the wintertime. Having that warm sun baking the water makes them a little more aggressive. Just to give you an idea of how well the winter can be, my two best days ever sight fishing redfish have been in the winter. One day was in February, and one day was in March. And as I'm sure you can imagine, there were times where we probably could have caught more than this with the right angler. And there's a lot of other factors, little factors that go into it. But just to give you a quick idea, you know, I had a day in March this year where we had two like 70 degree days. And the next day, the fish were just fired up, super aggressive. And I had a guy who has never fly fished for redfish. And if I'm not mistaken, he's never fished salt water on fly. He caught 34 redfish on fly in one area, 10 of those on poppers in March, early March. So that's like, those are like epic days. And, you know, when you've got a school of two to 300 fish in crystal clear water, there's a lot of eyes there. A lot of fit. They're very aware of what's going on. They get really pressured in the winter. So getting a couple nice sunny days, it just turned those fish on and they ate everything he threw. Honestly, I told the guy, I was like, as much as I'd love for you to come back, you probably shouldn't because you will never experience that again. That he was just one of those. That afternoon. He did. I mean, his first time ever to catch 34 on fly just was crazy. You know, I have days in the winter where we're lucky if we can get one to eat because they're cold and miserable. To narrow it down for my favorite time fishing here for redfish, I would say late July through early November. Um, I'm usually gone by early November, but the fishing here is still great in November. Weather's awesome, um, as long as we haven't had a really bad hurricane. But just to kind of dive into the other species, besides redfish, we have a lot of speckled sea trout. The better trout fishing is usually spring and fall. Summer, it's a little slow here in southern North Carolina, whereas up in the Pamlico Sound in the Outer Banks, it's much more consistent in the summer. Um, we have a, a pretty good flounder fishery, and I'll kind of get into the technical stuff in the flounder, you know, when you start asking where we talked about the whole like conservation issues here, but there's a lot that goes on with the flounder and redfish here. But flounder are make up a significant portion of our catch. Typically, we get flounder on fly when you're casting to a redfish and a flounder randomly explodes off the bottom and grabs it that you didn't even know was there, which the first time you do it is cool. The other times when you miss the opportunity at a redfish, it can be very frustrating. Bycatch. Yeah, exactly. And there are times where I've had guys that just wanted to catch one, and we'll take a sinking line and just go dredge it on the bottom in some little edges of a creek mouth or a little oyster point, and we'll pick some up like that. Now, what about uh, those locations that make them hang out there? You know, they're Dude. they're an ambush predator. They they are not like, you know, redfish are hunters. Like, I rarely see a redfish sitting still. Sometimes in the winter when it's cold, they'll be warming up over an oyster bar, but typically – they are traveling. They are moving up and down flat edges or creek mouths or oyster banks, and they're hunting food. Flounder are an ambush predator. They are very good camouflage, or they have very good camouflage, and they lay perfectly still on the bottom. And if you ever watch one in clear water when they spook from the boat, they'll run a little ways, and they'll 
wiggle their body and stir up a lot of sediment on the bottom, and it kind of falls back on their body, and only their eyes are sticking up. They are the perfect, you know, predator, perfect ambush predator. They will like perfectly steal. They just yeah, down. they blend in very, very well. And you'll catch them in, you know, clear water where they'll be a lot lighter, and in dark water they'll be very dark. But they, they are very good at hiding themselves, and they love to lay on a point or a, a marsh edge or a channel drop-off, anywhere there's anything they can hide behind. Yeah, any moving current, um, a little deep ledge. And as those bait fish and shrimp get washed by or swim by, they will explode off the bottom. And it's kind of funny. I've, I've started seeing it more and more over the years because I've been paying attention more to it. But we'll be poling around in like a foot of water looking for redfish, and you'll see a flounder just completely clear the water. Like, And what he's doing is because he explodes so fa fast off the bottom on a bait fish, his whole body will clear the water. And um, it's pretty cool to see flounder jumping. Yeah, they're, they're the perfect ambush predator, but they're a very hard fish to target on fly because it requires a lot of cast. Even spin fishing, I have guys throwing jigs, and we'll throw the same area a dozen times. And then the next cast, they'll hook a four-pound flounder in that same spot because it has to come by close to their head before they're going to chase it. On the rare occasion, I've had them come up in the water column. You can see them in clear water following a you know, fly or jig. But typically especially the bigger flounder, they're not going to move unless the food comes close to their body. Now, they're not great fighters, though, but they're very good to eat. Do you do catch and release, or are these, some of these going in the pan? You know, I, I definitely promote catch and release, especially on the redfish. You know, one, they're, they're kind of almost like my, my pets. I rely on them each day. They're very much creatures of habit. They stay in the same areas for the most part. I try to promote catch and release. You know, if somebody really wants to keep one, we'll do it. I'm definitely not one of the guides who will keep the guides limit. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's something that we should get rid of. However, if someone wants to keep a fish, then, you know, I have no objections to it. Flounder, however, are one of those fish that we often kill flounder. <laughs> They're probably one of the tastiest fish, except for maybe a triple tail that we get in our marsh. They, they die quite a bit more often than a redfish does. What is the guides limit? So what I mean by that is, let's say, for instance, you know, redfish. So you're allowed to keep one fish per person, and it has a slot limit. They have to be between 18 and 27 inches. Can't be smaller, can't be bigger. So let's say I have two anglers on the boat, and they each keep their fish. And because I'm on the boat with them, I count as a third person. So some guides will allow the anglers to keep their limit, too. You know, so it's fine at first, but if you start doing the numbers, let's say you've got a guy who's running a bay boat and he's got four anglers and then, so they can keep five fish, you know, one including the guide. And he takes five fish every day out of those areas. You know, you have a school of 30 or 40 fish. Next thing you know, you're down to half the school or less. I don't agree with the whole guides keeping or clients to keeping the guides limit. Basically. I think that hurts you in the long run. Flounder, for instance, you could keep, at one point, you could keep six per person. So you could keep your six and then the guide's six. So that's that just seems a little bit overkill from my perspective. Yeah, exactly. And just knowing, you know, guys I fish with, and um, they'll, they've told me the same way they shouldn't have kept as many because they froze them and they wet freezer burn. And I've, I've got relatives that, you know, growing up in a small town where we come and where I'm from, I mean, 
you come down to the beach, they kill everything they catch, and they're going to try to take it home and eat it. And, I, again, I have no issues with that at all, but I think there comes a point where it becomes excessive. So I don't agree with the God's limit, especially in our fishery, which is already struggling to start with. But sorry to get off on a rant there about that. The flounder definitely get killed more often. However, right now we have a flounder closure for the first time ever. Our flounder have been overfished for many, many years. There were chances for them, the Marine Fisheries Commission, to reduce the take from a commercial and recreational side. And long story short, we got to a point where it was a forced closure. And I'm sure we'll get into that part, or I can get into it now if you want to explain. So what I, what, what's happened, you know, we allow commercial gill netting. We're one of the few states that still allow commercial gill netting. And unfortunately, it really hurts our fishery. You will hear guys say, you know, it doesn't do the damage that water quality does, or there's more pressure. And yes, all of those are factors, but it is unmistakable that gill nets play a major factor in our fisheries decline. If you look at South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, all those states have a ban on nets. And all those states, as much as it kills me to admit this, have a significantly better fishery than ours. On a day-to-day basis, well, just stopped because... their gill nets 20, 21 years ago. Exactly. There are some states like, I think Texas and Louisiana, they did it like, yeah, back in like the 80s maybe. I know Florida did it like in the early 90s. So, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. And, you know, they're really good at appealing to emotion by saying, you know, you're taking away jobs, you're taking away our heritage. But when it comes down to it, a small percentage of jobs and your so-called heritage does not trump the public resource. And you go to all these meetings and you'll hear the commercial lobbyists, which, by the way, they have some really good lobbyists. I'll give them credit for that. They know what they're doing and they really pull at people's emotions. But, you know, they will say it's a coastal issue. It's not a it's Piedmont or, cent- or Central North Carolina or mountain issue, so they shouldn't have a say in it. But the fact is it's public water. It's a public resource. Having a state, too, that has a separate inland fishing and hunting uh, management entity versus a saltwater management entity, our saltwater guys don't get the funding they need. We have a division of marine fisheries, which are saltwater, and they're small. And I hear the guys a lot complain about not having the funds, not getting the money they need to repair boats, to, to go enforce the laws that we have. It's very frustrating compared to other states. But long story short, back to the flounder, you know, the commercial industry takes a significant portion of our flounder take. They have a quota limit. And I think I saw one statistic that said they take almost 90% of the flounder take in North Carolina. That's pretty dumb. They're gillnetting. Yeah, and the recreational anglers take a small portion. Well, instead of allowing the recreational angler or user group to stay open, and again, I would have been totally okay if they reduced it to one fish per person and increased the size limit. Just whatever they could do to, you know, keep people happy, let them have their one, one flounder instead of six. But instead, they shut down a very small user group um, as well as the commercial sector and because the commercial, commercial sector was not happy about it. But what's crazy is they allowed the commercial guys to keep their season last year and finish out their quota. And it's, it's very frustrating. We're going to have a six-week season this year. It's going to be from August 15th through, I think, September 30th. 
and you can keep a flounder at that point. But other than that, we're closed. Now, the commercial sector is also going to get a season, and they're going to have a quota. And again, they're going to take significantly more flounder than the recreational sector just from the fact that, one, netting kept captures a lot more fish. But also, if you think about it, how often do you yourself come to North Carolina to fish? Maybe three or four days out of a year, maybe a week. The chances of you being here during that six-week season is pretty slim. So just by sheer numbers, there's going to be a lot less flounder taken on the recreational side in that short six-week season, especially compared to what the commercial sector is going to take. And where it's bad is gill nets kill indiscriminately. They can't legally target redfish here, but they're allowed a redfish bycatch. So when they go out and target their flounder, they set the nets, and they typically set them at sunset, and they have the nets. They have to have them out of the water at sunrise. There have been many days where I've showed up to a creek or a flat, and there will be dead redfish floating everywhere with net scars. You will hear guys say that nets, you know, they get them out of the nets before they die and all these, you know. Quite honestly, again, they're really good at spreading lies when it comes to that because I've got videos and pictures as well as most every guide up and down the North Carolina coast that prove that is not true. A lot of fish have net scars that end up dying. And I think I saw somewhere that said the discard mortality rates on fish that were taken out of a net is still somewhere between like 60 and 80% of those fish die after being pulled from a net. Yeah. Because when they're ripping those fish out of the net, they're screwing up all their gear. Don't get me wrong. There are some. I'm sure there are some great commercial fishermen. There's a couple guys around here who are super nice. There's some crabbers that I know that they're always telling me some fishing info where they've seen fish. They're awesome guys. But, you know, it's just like any other user group. There's always the bad apples. And those guys just rip the fish out of the nets, and they're dead. I mean, they're going to die if they're not dead right away. The nets also catch Sea turtles, dolphin, birds. I mean, I've seen all kinds of stuff dead in nets. It's a 2,000-year-old it, technology that still is not that effective at actually doing what you're trying to do. It is not, and it is so frustrating. And, you know, to be one of the few states that allow to the degree that we do, like I, I can't even begin to I – mean, I can do a whole podcast on just the nets. It's so very frustrating. You know, we have these things called incidental take permits, um, and which require observers on the boats and observers go on and because of sea turtles and Atlantic sturgeon, which are both considered, you know, endangered species. Well, we are required to have observers on the boat a certain percentage of the time. There's never been a reported interaction with a sea turtle in a net when there wasn't an observer on the boat. You know, these guys aren't going to tell on themselves because once there we've reached our quota for the incidental take permits, they're required to shut down a certain section of the state for the netting. So all these sea turtles get caught in the nets as well. And, you know, that's been a major help for us is getting the awareness out that turtles are getting hurt in these nets because you really appeal to people's emotions when you start talking about killing a 15- or 20-year-old sea turtle compared Just to killing a redfish. Think about that one video of a sea turtle having a straw pulled out of its nose. Yeah, exactly. What that did to straws. Yep, exactly. And, you know, seeing dolphins wrapped up in nets, just, you know, dead or tangled in it and stuff like that. And it's, um, then it's, that's a, I mean, 
for fish, it's, it's a bad it's, way to die. But those things have like a conscience and can communicate. And, they are very, very intelligent animals. I've watched on. dolphins hunt redfish, and honestly, they're more effective than most fishermen. They are very effective, and to see them wrapped up in nets and just lots of you know sea life, you know, besides fish, all wrapped up in it, it's so frustrating. But there's been quite a few movements to help try to get a ban on nets here. Again, the commercial lobbyists are really good, man. I will say they are. I can give them credit for one thing. They are really good about, you know, promoting the commercial industry. And, you know, I think I saw something along the lines that over 70% of our seafood is shipped out of state anyways. Oh, yeah. So, sent to Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Like, you know, they use the excuse, you know, hey, you know, you stop our netting, you stop seafood from North Carolina, which it's not true because most of it is shipped out of state anyways. But anyways, you know, I could, again, I could go on and on about the nets. But long story short, our flounder fishery is closed now, and then it'll open back up in August through the end of September, and then it'll be closed again. And then I think next year we will have another season. And then after that, you know, it's up to the Marine Fisheries Commission to vote on whether to open it back up year-round or to keep it closed for a short season. Flounder definitely make up a big portion of our catch, more so on conventional tackle than fly, but we do get them on fly. And then, you know, to get back into species, I know I got off on a rant on nets there. I knew it was going to come up eventually. And there are some some other guides in my area and a couple in particular, a couple hours north of me, who are very, very educated on the net fishery and the statistics that if you ever wanted to do a podcast on that, um, there's one guy in particular who would be really, really good guy for that, but could tell you all the exact details. He's on the Action Marine Fisheries Commission as well. You know, to get back into species, you know, sea trout, flounder, redfish, of course, those are our main three. And then, you know, we also get jacks, lots of sharks. We get tar. We have a really, gosh, I don't really, I, don't, I won't get into the tarpon too much, just because it's very, uh, it's very secretive in, in the little small community of guys that actually do it on a regular basis. And uh, I know that it will be looked down upon to talk about it too much, but we do have a real pretty good tarpon fishery. If you ever wanted to come experience that, it can be. I've had some days that would have rivaled some of my days in the Keys. Here. I'm just waiting for the ocean to get warmer, and we'll get them up here in the Potomac. Exactly. I know you guys get them up there as well. There are some in the Chesapeake Bay. There are some spots. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Um, there's a guy I know in South Florida who has an angler who lives in the Chesapeake, and he's caught him on fly in the Chesapeake. That's awesome. Um, so it's um, it's definitely doable. Um, we get them in the ocean and in the big rivers around here and up in the Pamlico Sound. I've had some days this year already that were, were really good. I watched a buddy next to me on bait one day a couple weeks ago go like seven for nine in a few hours. So it can it can be good on tarpon, but, again, it's it's very weather and condition dependent for tarpon. Other species are much easier. You know, to get back into species, we have ladyfish, jacks, triple tail, black drum, sheep's head. Uh, the list just goes on as far as our inshore species. The other thing, you know, I've got a bay boat that allows me to be a little flexible as well, and we'll do some nearshore fly and light tackle fishing as well on the nearshore wrecks and reefs. And you can go out there and catch cobia amberjacks king mackerel spadefish all kinds of different reef species even on fly sometimes on the surface with poppers and other times with sinking lines sending it down and stripping it up from the wreck or reef so there's a really good ocean fishery as well one of my most favorite actually is the false albacore in the fall we have a pretty good albacore fishery for about a six to eight week period uh depending on hurricanes the last two years have been tough thanks to some hurricanes ruining it 
but the albacore fishing mid to late September through October is, is an, they're awesome fish. They fight really hard and they're very easy targets and you will see your backing most every time you hook one. So those, those guys are great. And then there's a lot of other ocean, you know, species along the beaches. I do a lot of shark fishing on fly. Whenever I have someone that just wants to catch something big and doesn't care what it is and we go shark fishing, grab behind a shrimp trawler with a 12 weight and a bait fish fly and a little bit of wire leader. And most days you can sight cast to the sharks on the surface. Really? You can pick which one you want to throw to behind the trawler. And inevitably it's, it's kind of funny. Inevitably guys go for the bigger ones and about 45 minutes into the fight, they really regret that decision. The sub hundred pounders are definitely much easier to control and get in the boat. What species of sharks are you guys picking off? You know, we get a lot of black tips. They're definitely my favorite. Black tips are always willing to eat. They jump a lot. But we get, you know, bull sharks. Um, I've seen lemons. We saw a massive hammerhead a few days ago, which probably one of the biggest ones I've ever seen here. So cool. I've seen them on the Keys before, you know, around the bridges, you know, on tarpon fishing. They were just massive, you know, 12 to 14 footers. But I saw one here the other day. Let's just say that um, it'll, it'll make you second guess ever going in the water here. Even though I know it's an irrational fear knowing that you're not going to get bit by a shark. It's extremely unlikely. But when you see a shark that's 150 feet off the, off the breaking waves where people are swimming and have no idea it's there, a shark that can literally eat you, it's um, a little more intimidating. Yeah. This, this guy, he was in about six feet of water, and he came right up to the boat and circled us a couple times. Just He was really check curious, you know, checking us out. Yeah, he's up. just, you know, coming to check us out. The guy I had was like, hey, let's ride over and look at him. And I looked up and saw the shark coming at us, and I just put the boat in gear. And we didn't have to go to him. He came to check us out. Wow, that's fascinating. But, you know, we get some great whites here in the wintertime that move along the beaches. You can track them on that O-Search yeah. website. A lot of tiger sharks in the near shore wrecks that are really curious that'll come up to the boat. But again, we don't try to target those giant ones just because one, most people are not have no chance at landing them. And two, it's, you know, we don't have the tackle. I mean, I'm not going to rig the tackle for that. It would take, you know, hours to land one of those big tigers on fly. But behind the shrimp trawlers, you know, when they're pulling their, their nets up, you know, they're pulling all these dead fish, crabs, stingrays, all kinds of sea life. Awful industry, too. It just creates, yeah, well, it is. And, um, again, as much as I love the shark fishing behind the trawlers, it really is so primitive and destructive. It is. I think I saw something about the current statistic is over seven pounds of bycatch for every one pound of shrimp. It's like clear-cutting a forest to get, like, eight chipmunks. If you could see all the dead gray trout and croakers and all kinds of bottom fish that I see floating behind the trawlers, it's it's devastating on the juvenile fish. But people love shrimp, and I don't foresee that stopping anytime soon. I'm going to blame Forrest Gump for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but, yeah, the, the shark fishing is amazing behind the trawlers. From this time of year through the early fall, if there was a guarantee, it's as close to a guarantee on flies you can get. Just because if they're there on the surface, you're going to hook one. So and um, what's your gear for it, this? It, what um, what usually, rods are you carrying rigged up, leader-wise, line-wise? You know, for sharks, I typically just do a floating line, 12 weight, a short, like, you know, four or five foot leader. I'll do a piece of wire. I used to use the seven-strand wire sometimes, but, you know, their teeth get mangled in it and mess it up. So I just use a about a... 15-inch piece of single-strand wire and a, a big, bright orange or red or white, maybe six- to eight-inch long shark fly. Even though sharks are colorblind, do you still feel a difference in, 
maybe you know I feel like those, those brighter can... colors definitely that orange or red really draws their attention so it weird. absolutely does you know they feed a lot by their sense of smell of course but you will see a drastic difference on those bait fit on those sharks reaction to a brighter color fly than you do a more natural fly they definitely pick up on it very well and where you see it more often it's not necessarily behind the trawlers where they're in just straight feeding mode in that buffet behind the trawler. But when we go out and if there's not a trawler, we'll go out and put a chum bag out. And when they come in on the chum, sometimes they're really, they're real curious. They're just kind of rolling around in the chum slick, checking it out. They get a little harder to feed sometimes like that. So having a fly, they really pick up on something really bright. I don't use a lot of flash in it. I've had them spook off flash a lot, but just a real bright orange or blood red colored fly. And they will track it. They'll get right on it, follow it. However, sometimes they do get stubborn, and you got to take it away from them and slap it back in their face over and over. And sometimes they just get really mad and eat it anyways. Color, definitely. I like a, I like a red, a bright red, or orange, or a, just a solid white shark fly. A lot of hackles on it, something that moves a lot in the water. You usually get about one shark, maybe two sharks, depending on where he's hooked out of a fly. I'll just chop it off or I'll use a D hooker, pop the fly out, cut it off the wire and put another, another fly on and go back to it. Interesting. Um, you don't have to make anything technical for the sharks. You just, I just literally take a handful of hackles. I don't even try to put them on there perfectly. I just grab a handful, tie it in, tie a head on the fly, maybe like some marabou or some deer hay or something that pushes a little bit of water and it's done. Very simple, but very effective for sharks. What's your redfish rig? Redfish, typically, you know, if, if, if it's light winds, seven weight works good, but typically an eight or a nine weight, uh, depending on wind and the angler's casting ability. That plays a factor a lot of times. A lot of times I give a guys a nine weight just so they can punch it, you know, a little bit further out. But usually all floating lines, usually depending on time of year, summer and fall when the water's dirtier, little more stained you can go with like an eight foot leader for the most part they're not super leader shy as, as long as you don't line them with the fly line leader doesn't really matter too much uh winter time i'll go maybe 10 to 12 feet depending on how clear the water is and how spooky they are as far as flies man redfish are probably the most opportunistic feeders you can pretty much take any fly and with the right presentation you can make a redfish eat it but with that being said, I typically fish a lot of shrimp or minnow patterns. I've, I've caught redfish on plastic frogs you'd use for bass on spinning tackle. I've caught them on all kinds of random stuff, but just to see what they wouldn't eat. We caught them on like mouse pattern, like stuff you'd use for trout. Just go absurd um, as possible to see what they'll eat. Yeah, exactly. Just exactly. throw something obnoxious to them. I heard and with the right presentation, if you, if you make it just appear out of nowhere where they think they stumbled across it and you make that fly or lure try to get away from them it draws that predatory response and nine times out of ten they're going to chase it down and try to kill it presentation is more important than fly but with that being said i fish a lot of shrimp and minnow patterns just for the simple fact that you can strip it at different speeds you know a crab fly if you strip it wrong it can sometimes twist in the water sometimes with a crab it, it blends in too much and i find i would rather the fish see the fly and spook off the fly because it was either too big or flashy rather than him not see it at all. So I typically tie a lot of copper or gold flash in my redfish flies. And if I see they're spooking off of it, I'll just rip the flash out while I'm on the water. Cool. Um, 
but nothing real technical, you know, two to four inches, depending on, you know, situation. I'll use a lot of bead chain for shallow water or if the fish are tailing on low tide or if they're spooky. If it's a little bit deeper water, I'll fish, you know, some smaller, medium-sized lead eyes. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com I would just say the most important thing is have a variety of sizes. You can just honestly bring any one particular shrimp or minnow pattern and just have a few in bead chain and a few in you know medium or small lead and you'll be set. Copper and gold flash is never a bad idea. It shows up when the water's really stained or murky. You know, on spinning tackle, if you go anywhere up and down the Easter Gulf Coast, you will see gold spoons in most any conventional fishing guy's boat. Gold spoons work amazing. So some gold flash in a fly, it just stands out, and they can pick up on that really quickly. I can't tell you how many times I have guys that, you know, bring their own flies, which look really good in your hand, and they swim really good in the water, but... Because they're, they're, they look so realistic, they blend in. And, you know, a bait fish and a shrimp, they're made to blend in. Well, if that fly is off that fish by a foot or two and that water is murky or stained, you'll watch the fish just not even acknowledge it because he didn't see it. So having a little bit of flash or a little bit of a head on the fly that pushes some water, something to draw their attention can make a big difference, especially in the summer and fall when the water's stained. Local fly shop where you procure your goods for tying? The only place really in town, actually I take that back, there's another place now, but the main shop in town that has fly tying material is a Great Outdoor Provision Company, a little shop I worked at when I was in college here. There's like six or seven stores around North Carolina, but we have one here in Wilmington. The other place we just got recently, um, a sportsman's warehouse, which carries some fly tying material. If you're looking for rods, some reels, or actually flies in general, or um, fly lines, one of the best selections lately, um, Intracoastal Angler, which is a more of a conventional tackle shop, but they've really grown their fly section lately, or their fly fishing section, and they have a pretty good variety of flies, fly lines. They usually have about a dozen, 15 rods in stock, so all three of those places are pretty good. But yeah, th- those are the three shops that are around town that has um, fly fishing um, tackle. Very nice. What time do you all start in the morning, or is it always a morning? Do you, do you start different times based on tides and weather? Yeah, so that's a whole other thing there. And, I, you know, I fish, obviously, Louisiana a few months. I, I, tra- I travel to the Keys and the Everglades and fish with buddies down there at least once a year. Didn't this year thanks to COVID, but I'm going to try to get down in the fall before I go to Louisiana. But, you know, those guys don't have the tide swings that we have. So a lot of times they'll start in the mornings regardless, and – you know, obviously tide plays a factor everywhere you go, but not as big of a factor in an area like ours where, depending on what beach you are at, it could be anywhere from like a three to four and a half foot tide swing and every six hours. And on a full moon or a new moon week, it could be, you know, five, sometimes a six foot tide swing. Wow. So that's a lot of water moving through an area, and it's a lot of water that it can make or break finding fish in an area. And what I mean by that is, when that water comes in, there's a four-foot tide swing. That's a drastic amount of area the fish can move around in 
Whereas when that water drops, they're condensed into a smaller area. However, when the water's lower, it gets a little bit dirtier because you have all the sediment buildup. Going back to your question, I don't start every day at the same time. I usually base where, what time I start based on, one, the weather, two, the tides, and three, the area we're fishing. Some places I like to fish on higher water, and other places I only fish it on lower water, especially when it comes to fly fishing. Conventional tackle, I've got a lot more flexibility. But fly fishing, I definitely base it on the tides and wind direction. And to add on to that, you know, it might be a little too technical, but just to give you an idea, the wind sometimes can play a, a big factor in this in terms of if you get an east wind or a northeast wind, it'll make a high tide higher, a low tide not as low as predicted. Whereas you have a west wind or south wind, it typically keeps water from coming in so the high tides aren't as big, and the low tides are much lower because it blows more water out. So most days that's not a drastic difference, but sometimes you get a strong northeast wind, you'll sometimes see a foot more water. So if you have a predicted four-foot tide, at, let's say at 12 p.m., you have a four-foot tide, and you have a 20-mile-an-hour northeast wind, well, it might make that four-foot tide a 4.8 or a 5.2, you know, it's going to make it significantly bigger than the forecast. So those little factors really determine not necessarily always where you fish, but how long you can fish an area. Right. And there's a little saying in the shallow water industry about um, it's not a matter of if, it's when you will be stuck if you do this kind of fishing much. So this weekend, I'm assuming you've got that low pressure building off the coast now. That's supposed to come up here. And we're going after snakeheads on Saturday, no, Friday afternoon and Saturday morning. So we're, I'm hoping that that's just going to push more water up into the tidal creeks and the snakeheads are going to just be sticking out of the trees and branches where we can target them. They have a little bit more extra space to hide where we're going to go look for them. Yep, exactly. And that's kind of the same here with our, the bait fish here. When that water gets high, they have more places to hide. And it, but it spreads the predators out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the bait fish love the higher tides. They hate the lower water because they're concentrated more. Predators take more advantage of it. Even the birds take more advantage of the, of the bait fish on the lower tides when they're more vulnerable. Um, so water, water depth and water or tides definitely play a factor in what time I start every day. You know, being here in my area, I do, I'd say 70 to 80% of my trips are fly trips or at least start out as fly trips. I tell everybody that books a trip here, I'm like, look, we'll, we'll set the date, and then I'll ask them how long of a trip. You know, I do four, six, and eight-hour trips, so half-day, three-quarter, and full days. If they are doing a half-day trip, I will let them choose morning or afternoon because usually I'll book another trip that day as well. But I'll tell them, I'm like, look, we'll touch base the night before. We'll look at the wind update, and then we will base a starting time in which boat ramp we use based on um, the forecast. That way we kind of, we eliminate as many variables as we can, really increase our chances. You know, some guides, they'll start at the same time every single day, especially the conventional, you know, inshore and offshore guides. They're trying to get out before the wind kicks up in the afternoons, which is a, a, a separate question. But just to give you an idea, our normal, win, our normal weather pattern here is it's calm in the morning, windy midday. Sometimes you get a little afternoon thunderstorm, and then it's calmer again in the evenings. With that being said, you get some days it's windy all day, some days it's calm all day. But I would rather have 
a specific set of tide and wind conditions midday than the force going early morning just because it's calm. You might go and it might be no wind at all, but you've got you know water that's not the right level and you just can't see the fish. And most everything we do fly fishing is sight fishing, except What's for your, a few uh, sunglasses. What are you wearing? Um, I mean, I wear. I got a Costas. That's Costa del Mar. I've got different color lenses. You really can't go wrong with copper or amber lenses. I've got a pair of the silver mirror lenses that I use on low light days, but I often keep two or three different pairs in the boat. One, it allows me to switch. If, I, if it's a cloudy day, I'll go to the, the lighter ones. If it's a, a brighter day, I'll use the copper, or I will use the green mirror, which have a copper base. Those work well also. Oh, yeah. But more importantly, I keep a few in the boat just for people to, to wear if they don't have the proper glasses because the gray lenses and the blue mirror, which have a gray base, don't have the contrast that the brown lenses have. So you can't see a brown fish on brown water on a brown bottom as easily. So I definitely always recommend some a brown, copper, or amber lens. Costa is the 580 glass lens is what I use most of the time just because of the clarity and because I'm constantly wiping salt water, whether it's I make a wrong turn and I get a little salt spray on my sunglasses or if a fish splashes and throws salt water on my glasses – you know, wiping them off. You're constantly wiping salt spray. Eventually, you're going to get some, like, smear, um, scratch marks in them. So the glass lenses are great for that. However, I'll tell you from experience, if you drop your glass lenses on cement, Done. they will shatter. Yep, 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 yep. Been there twice. <laughs> and if you hit yourself in the eye with your fly and it's lead eyes, they will shatter or crack. But, yeah, the, the Costas are really good. I'm definitely a big fan of their glasses. Have you ever worn eye black like baseball players? I haven't. I started you know, doing I, that last year, but and it works because I don't want to be all squinty, wrinkly dude in a couple of years. But now I'm wearing my buff up to the bottom of my sunglasses, so I can't. Yep, exactly. I was going to say I wear a buff religiously. You know, I go to the dermatologist once a year. Uh, I didn't go for many years, but now I try to go. And she, she's always times telling me about the people that she sees on the sun every day and that I keep doing what I'm doing. So I make sure to cover up from head to toe. I hate sunscreen with a passion. Yep. So the only place I put sunscreen is on my hands whenever I can't wear sun gloves. So if I've got a, let's say I've got a kid fishing trip and we're fishing bait and I can't wear sun gloves, then I'll put sunscreen on my hands. But otherwise, my normal outfit is I wear, I wear tennis shoes. I wear, you know, if it's a rainy day, I'll wear some like extra tough waterproof boots with rain gear. But otherwise, I wear shoes, pants, synthetic long sleeve shirt. Most of the time, I have a hood on the shirt. I wear the buff all the way up under my sunglasses. The covers as high up on my nose as I can. And then I have a hat with a dark brim pulled down as tight as I can to my sunglasses to eliminate any glare I could possibly have. But yeah, pulling your buff up definitely will help keep that glare off your cheeks. And it'll help you from getting sunburn on your nose and cheeks. All right. Uh, one of my last questions before we go into the random stuff. How should a client prepare to go out on a trip with you? Besides not showing up hungover and or inebriated. Well, I'll tell you, sometimes it amazes me that guys don't prepare at all. Now, I would say 99% of people I get prepare the best they can. You know, obviously life, kids, work, play a factor in how much you can practice casting before you come. You can buy the best rod, the best fly line, the best reel, but it will not allow you to throw it 50 feet into a wind or a 15-mile-an-hour wind to a moving fish on a moving boat. Practice as much as possible, and if I can recommend two things, learn how to double haul, 
single most important thing, without a doubt, the double haul. Number two is learn how to make a good back cast. Because in the, in the red fishing game, especially in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Louisiana, anywhere where the water might be stained, and, and even in Florida sometimes, a lot of places in Florida, you know, if you're in the Keys and the water's crystal clear and you can see that fish 70, 80 feet out and you can position the boat perfect, you know, you can always get that left or, you know, that forehand cast. But sometimes we'll be pulling a shoreline and the redfish will just appear, you know, 20 feet at your 2 o'clock. At 20 feet, if I try to position the boat, most of the time he's going to make us and see us and he's going to be gone before you have a chance. So being able to drop that back cast accurately can make or break some days, especially the cloudy days, the overcast, muddy water days, anything that can prohibit your visibility. Making a good backcast is definitely important. There's a lot of videos. If you can't go to one of your local fly shops and get some casting lessons, there are tons of videos on Vimeo and YouTube that'll teach you how to double haul and how to throw a good backcast. Those are definitely the two most important things. Another thing on the backcast is You'll sometimes be sitting there, let's say if you're tarpon fishing on a tarpon string and you've got them coming down a line and you've got a, you're a right-handed caster and you have a 15 to 20 mile an hour wind off of your right shoulder. Well, if you try to make that 12 o'clock cast or even 11 o'clock cast sometimes, you're going to have the line and wind blow into your body and you're going to hook yourself. Whereas if your guide can position the boat slightly downwind and you throw a back cast, you keep that line away from your body, that hook away from you, it definitely increases your chances. Most days we are able to position the boat, and I try to always give guys a forehand shot if possible, but a good back cast really makes the day sometimes red fishing because these fish can just appear out of nowhere sometimes. That and the double haul, and the other thing is line management. I'm sure all fly fishing guys, no matter if they're freshwater, saltwater, they will all agree Line management is a major player. Always be aware of where your fly line is around your feet, in the boat, if there's any knots, if it's tangled around anything in the boat, whether it's a flats boat, a drift boat. Make sure you're aware of your fly line at all times because I'll tell you, I've had more, gr <laughs> I've had more grown men sit down on my front casting platform so angry and frustrated at themselves from tangled fly line or stepping on their fly line than anything else. You may work all day in tough conditions for that one good shot and you connect on that fish and then the fly line is in a knot or it's tangled around your feet and then you break that fish off. It's it's comical in the um, now looking back, but I've, I'll say it makes for some awkward times on the boat watching 60-year-old men have a full-on meltdown on the front of a boat from losing a fish. So always be aware of where your fly line is. One little quick funny story that should probably give you a laugh here is a guy I fish with, and I still fish with him. He had a moment on the boat one day where we were albacore fishing, and we caught, we, we'd already caught quite a few albacore, but the wind was kicking up. It was a little swelly, and uh, <laughs> we were actually running his boat. He's got a boat, and I was running the boat for him. He was casting. It was getting a little snotty in the ocean, hard to keep your balance. He hooked multiple fish at the end of the day, or close to the end of the day, and he kept stepping on his line. So he broke two off in a row standing on his line. And in case you're not familiar with albacore fishing, or anyone listening, I mean, or it's a run-and-gun type fishery. You see the fish busting under birds, you race your boat over to it, you cast in, you strip really fast, and you hold on, because they're going to rip the line off the deck of the boat at Mach 2, and it's going to 
take you into your backing right away. Well, if you're tangled, you're going to pop that 15 or 20 pound tippet every time. So he broke two off in a row and the next group of fish we pull up into, he throws in, I think he may have stripped the fly like four times and was tight. Well, the line, when it ripped out of his left hand, it wrapped around his watch on his hand and he broke a third fish off in a row. Now, keep in mind, we already caught quite a few fish and it was a great day to start with, but the frustration had built up and, you know, we were rocking around the ocean getting wet. Well, I'll never forget, he turned and he had, I'll never forget, he had a Sage XI2 or XI3 maybe and a T-Bore reel and he turned and he threw that rod in the floor of the boat as hard as he could uh-uh. and I won't use the exact words that he used. But he said uh, along the lines of, F this, I'm ready to go right now. And um, <laughs> I, really, I pick on him about it now, and it's, it's funny, and he even laughs at it now. Again, it just comes from tangled fly line and not being aware of where your fly line is when you hook that fish or when you're making that cast. So double haul, back cast, and fly line management, those are the three major things. Okay. You know, I don't need someone that gets on the front of a boat that can throw it 100 feet. I just need You just need to be able to throw it 40 feet with accuracy most days, and that's all you need. My last question, then, is uh, any suggestions or advice for DIY fishing in Wrightsville? You said maybe mackerel? Yeah, so, you know, this time of year through the fall offers, you know, the DIY angler a little more opportunities. If you have a kayak or boat, of course, it gives you more opportunities, but if you own foot, there are a handful of places you can go, and one one in particular I caught my first redfish on fly at when I was in college here, when I first moved here. There's, there's a rock jetty that sticks out on the south end of Wrightsville Beach. The jetty and at the south end? Of Wrightsville Beach, yes. And if you look at it on a map, I'm looking. on a satellite imaging, there there's, a, there's some giant rocks on the ends, and then on the Wrightsville Beach side of the jetty, there's a small, like, 15-inch wide wall that connects to the rocks to the beach. Yep. And on that left side, on the ocean side, you can see there's shallow sandbars and waves breaking. And then when you look on the right side, there is it's a lot deeper water on the inlet side. And what happens is, over the years, that waves coming over the side has dug out a trough right along the side of that wall. This time of year, when there's more bait in the surf, particularly in the fall, but even this time of year, a lot of species will stack up along that wall, and I've caught redfish, sea trout, flounder, jacks, ladyfish, bluefish, Spanish mackerel. It might be all the species I've caught there, but a variety of species just standing next to that wall and casting parallel down the wall and stripping your fly up the length of the wall. If it's a higher water, you know the waves are crashing on the wall. Sometimes it can be it can be kind of rough. So if you go out there on a mid to low tide, you'll see the actual wall and. You know, back when I used to do it, they didn't stop you as much. But now if the beach, Whitesville Beach Police or the lifeguards come down the beach, they'll make you get off the wall if you're standing on it. But if you're standing on the ocean side, you'll be sometimes in knee-deep water. And 20 inches in front of you on the other side of the wall, it'll be five or six feet deep. Sink so you can then? stand there. What's that? Sink tip? Yeah, I was going to say, you can throw a, a floater. I mean, I'm sorry, a sinking or a, a sink tip. I used to use a full sinking line typically, but throw it down the length of the wall, let it sink, and strip it back up the wall. Now, there are chunks of rocks and barnacles and all kinds of stuff out there that you'll get hung up on every now and then. So just kind of learn your depth. Like, you know, maybe first time let it sink five seconds. The next time maybe ten seconds. And then once you hit bottom, you know, you'll know when to stop it. 
And usually a minnow pattern, like a, a simple clouser, is very effective. You know, a size 2, size 1, even a 1 alt, honestly, this time of year. Lots of bait fish are bigger. Just strip it pretty quick up that wall, like that bait fish is trying to get to safety. And you, you'll catch a variety of species. The closer you get it to the bottom, your better chance of flounder. All the other species will come up to eat it. If you're throwing a floating line, you know, you can let it, you can throw some heavier clousers, kind of lengthen your leader a little bit, let it sink more. But the Spanish, the sea trout, bluefish, the jacks, they'll come up high in the water column and crush it. Try some slower strips, try some really fast strips. Just keep that fly moving at all times up that wall, and you'll be surprised what you'll get there sometimes. Where should I get lunch in Wrightsville? Uh, Wrightsville Beach, go to Tower 7. Tower it is uh, like a Baja Mexican grill. Yep, it's a little Southwest-style food. They have great like tacos, burritos, stuff like that. It's a really cool little place right on the corner in the, the main intersection there. There's a couple of sister restaurants to that around Wilmington called K38, like Kilometer 38. Same owners, same menu, basically, but on Wrightsville Beach, K38 is a great place. Oh, sorry, um, Tower 7. And, there, and just to give you another spot real quick, right across from Tower 7 on Banks Channel, there is a little park there called Wynn Plaza, like W-Y-N-N, Wynn Plaza. Right at Wynn Plaza, there's a couple parking spots, and there's a public dock. I've stood out there before at night and caught ladyfish around that bridge, just casting into the shadows and stripping the fly back from the shadows there. Little white or um, shrimp or minnow patterns will usually draw a bite from the ladyfish. Oh, wait. That took me to Wynn Plaza, Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. No, definitely not that one. <laughs> I think it's still called Wynn Plaza. I'm, I'm almost certain it is. Let me see here. I'll tell you exactly what it is. I've got it right here, too. It's literally right across from K38. It's on the south bridge there. It's not giving me that. I'm looking at my map here, but it's not showing up. It's right across from a, um, a Wings Beachwear. Got it. And that's by the trolley and stop, which has chili dogs. It is. Yeah, the trolley stop's another good place, another good hot dog place. But it's right on the water. It is on the southeast corner of the South Bridge at Wrightsville Beach. Okay. And there's a public dock there you can walk out on. And at nighttime, the ladyfish, if the current is flowing good, sometimes you can catch ladyfish there pretty good. And you might get lucky and get a sea trout, some other bottom fish there. But that's another good spot that's easy to do. I could walk Most on all these from my Airbnb, I think. Yeah, exactly. But I would say the jetty would be your best bet. There's not a lot of other opportunities that you can get to by foot. Sometimes, if you look at the any of you guys that are go to a the satellite imaging on Google Earth, if you look at the rock jetty and you go a little further south, you'll see a big point there. Yep. And the current comes around that point pretty good. And sometimes you'll get bluefish and Spanish mackerel that stack up in that current, busting on bait little glass minnows. So throwing a fly in there and stripping it back really quickly, sometimes you'll catch um, Spanish and bluefish right there also. Awesome. Our surf zone is a little rough. It's kind of hard to fish the surf, and quite honestly, it's not very effective. Even fishing conventional tackle, you'll catch a lot of little bottom fish like croakers and pinfish, but not a, little, not a lot of the game fish. But, yeah, any of the, any of the inlets or bridges will definitely um, have fish. It's just sometimes – Finding an area that you can get to and actually have casting a bit, casting room. Right My on. best advice if you go to the jetties, though, is to go early or late because in the summertime, um, Wrightsville Beach is probably the most popular beach in the state due to the crystal clear water and white sand, so it gets a little crowded out there. Right. But, yeah, that's kind of a quick rundown of our area. I mean, there's, a, again, a lot more technical details in a lot of it, but 
you know, every time of year offers a variety, but if I had to pick my favorite times here, it would definitely be summer and fall just due to the variety of species, more aggressive fish. You want to do some random stuff now? Sure. Anything from Northern Virginia I can bring you when we come down in two weeks? Northern Virginia. Oh. Craft beer, local food. You know, I, I really, nothing I can, I don't know if I've been to Northern Virginia and I've been to DC once, but that's, that's the, that's the only time I've been that far North. I've been to Chesapeake quite a few times, but, or the lower Chesapeake, but. I'm gonna have to bring you some mumbo sauce then. I don't know what that is, but I'll, I'll be out. glad to try it. All right. Um, <laughs> if you had a superhero power to make you a better angler, what would you choose? Oh, a, a better angler or a better God? Either one. Better God, being able to control the weather. Next storm, all right. I mean, I, if I could control the wind and the sunlight, I could make every day much better. Yeah. Consistent weather equals consistent fishing. What's the one thing you will not eat? Oh, um, hmm. Well, there's a lot of weird stuff out there that I'm sure I would not eat, but one thing that I won't eat anymore for a very specific reason is I just I, I love oysters, but I won't do raw oysters anymore. Really? We actually had a guy pass up, die in Wilmington last year from eating raw oysters at a restaurant. Actually, really? He, yeah, there's you know so oysters can carry some bacteria because yeah. you know, they filter Red water. Stuff. Yeah, so um, I think it was Vibrio he got, and he actually died from it. And uh, that's the second person I've heard in Wilmington over the last. I mean, I'm sure it happens in all states, but. Um, it was it was a big deal here because it happened at a restaurant. Raw oysters, just um, as much as I love them, it will only be cooked, steamed, or you know something along those lines before I eat them anymore. Okay. Are you related to anyone famous? Uh, unfortunately, not. What's at least some... not that I know of. I mean, I will say the most famous person that I'm related to. I've got a cousin who has a has a band. Um, it's called American Aquarium. They're like a like a indie rock country type band, and they're they've actually they've grown quite a bit, and um it's it's pretty amazing what they've done over the last ten years. They they tour the country. I think they got voted biggest or most touring band of twenty sixteen or seventeen by Rolling Stone or something like that. Yeah, so it was it was pretty good. I'm it's pretty cool to see what they've achieved over the last ten years. But yeah, nobody nobody really famous. All right, what is something you see out on the water that landlubbers do not get to see? There's some amazing sunrises and sunsets on the water that you don't see on land sometimes. But, you know, as far as there's a lot of life on the water that you don't think about when you just glance out at the ocean, you see on a regular basis. Like you see some cool, cool stuff, you know, as far as like, you know, predators interacting and birds interacting with bait fish, just stuff like that, that um, that you wouldn't think about. I, I seen the thing last year or two years ago or no, sorry, it was last year, last February. I was out with a guide buddy when I got back from Louisiana, and we were we were out in the marsh, and we had to school a redfish, and we were just trying to film some, so we flew the drone up, and we were filming a um, group of about 100, maybe 150 redfish in crystal clear water, and, you know, I've seen this many times from eye level, but not from a drone level, and we got extremely lucky that a mother dolphin and her calf raced up on the flat in like a foot and a half of water, and in crystal clear water, thrashing around until she caught a redfish out of the school, teaching her young calf how to hunt. So stuff like that is just cool. super cool. Yeah, it was probably the luckiest video footage we'll ever get. But, yeah, stuff like that on the water is every day is an adventure. You know, doing this hundreds of days a year for the last 
10, 15 years that I've been fishing here, you never know what you're going to see. And that's what I love about it. I mean, some days it's the same process over and over, but you really do see some really cool, interesting stuff. If you were to enroll at Hogwarts this fall, what house would you be placed in? <laughs> well, I have to understand. I have to know the houses to understand that. I have never watched one. I know what that is. I know it's from that movie, uh, Harry Potter, I guess. All right. We'll skip that. But that's, that. that's as far as I know on that. I've never watched one of those movies more than maybe like 10 minutes here or there. Oh, man, you're missing out. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, what gear item, if you left behind, would ruin your day? Sunglasses. What's the strangest thing you found when fishing? This is funny. Um, probably about eight years ago or so, we were fishing in an area. There's this one strip of shoreline down at Fort Fisher, which is a, you know, a, a national park area where there was a giant Civil War battle. And there's about 10 miles of beach to separate Fort Fisher from Bald Head Island. One day we were pulling on the shoreline, and I, I had another buddy of mine nearby. And this was... I was redoing my website, and I had him come over and shoot some pictures of me and my angler up front. We were just to use as a background photo, you know, as the, as the you know, landscape with the boat in it. Well, I heard a voice over in the marsh. You know, he's probably, my buddy in the boat's probably 150 feet away, and I, I knew it wasn't him, so I kind of looked around, and I looked to my left, and there was a naked man in the marsh, walking through the marsh, completely naked. I mean, just the darkest tan you could ever imagine, and about six miles from the nearest house or parking lot and no boat around. And obviously he was kind of living in the marsh there. Come to find out every picture that my buddy got of us that day has the naked man in the picture. <laughs> so I had to crop him out of one photo every, and it's funny. I had the picture. I'll, actually, I'll, send, I'll text it to you. You can see, I mean, he's walking away. He's real blurry in the distance, but yeah, there was the random naked man living on an Island in the marsh. <laughs> we have naked Ned on the Potomac. So <laughs> that's the that's the most interesting thing I've seen. Or not interesting, the weirdest thing I've yeah. seen, I should say. Uh, do you ever get strange phone calls asking for things? I, regularly, how much does it cost to fish on my pier? Is my water fresh or salt? I recently got a call. Somebody wanted me to catch her a bottlenose dolphin for her aquarium. <laughs> People show up here looking for bait. Do you get strange calls? I get calls a lot about thinking that I'm a tackle shop. I'm sure all guides do it. People just Google tackle shop and fishing guides pop up. So I don't think I've got any, at least not that I can remember offhand. I, I'll, I'll say the the calls that I get a lot and kind of makes me laugh sometimes is I get guys who say they watched a fishing show and they want to catch a, a tuna and a redfish in the same day. And uh, unfortunately, in my area, that is not possible. <laughs> and they are very bummed when I tell them that is not a possibility. But I haven't got any weird calls that I can think of. What's the deal with all the people in the paddle boards? Man, paddleboarding has taken off. Everybody loves to paddleboard. I should have I'm thought sure of paddle boards, just like great I should have thought of white claw. Man, I, if I would have thought about fishing kayaks and paddle boards, you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, yeah, you would. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you, living near Wrightsville Beach, which is definitely a, a higher-end beach, everybody has a paddle board, and they are everywhere, and... Honestly, it makes a good fishing platform if you can, you know, handle all the boat traffic. You know, get back in the marsh, out of the waterway, and it opens up a lot of opportunities for you. There are some guys here that I know that catch redfish out of off paddle boards pretty often, actually. Sweet. Do you have any irrational phobias? Irrational phobias. Oh, I don't think I'm really – I can think. I mean, as far as, like, scared of something, I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily scared, but I, I – I hate spiders. 
I don't mind. You know, most people say, "Oh, I'm scared of snakes." I I deal with you know turkey hunting a lot. I'm scared of. I mean, see snakes all the time. Doesn't bother me. Uh, spiders a lot. My grandpa actually, and I think that's what really plays a factor in it. He got bit right above his eye um, by a brown recluse there, and it's Ooh. it's basically ruined his eyesight and one of his eyes. And it's like his eyes are very droopy. His eyes kind of changed colors a little bit and stuff like that. You know, maybe, but. And then I guess being on the water every day and seeing the sheer number of sharks that I see, knowing that your chances of getting bit by a shark is extremely low, it's kind of hard for me to get in the water sometimes knowing what I know. Right. I mean, I've had 150-pound sharks hooked up and had giant sharks try to eat them, both sides. So, cool. yeah, stuff like that kind of makes you think twice. So that's probably an irrational fear of being in the water. So... It's kind of one of those out of sight, out of mind. If you don't know they're there, you don't think about it. But trust me when I tell you, if you get in our water or any salt water, there are sharks around. I'm not telling my wife or my dad. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, next one. Uh, did you watch the Netflix series Outer Banks? You know, I watched like five minutes of it one day just to see, because you know how Netflix gives you the recommended shows. Well, I clicked, I watched it for a few minutes, and I'll tell you, it's so wrong. They use, I'm sure you've heard them say the word Figure Eight Island on there. Well, Figure Eight Island is actually the island right next to Wrightsville Beach. I fish near it all the time. It's far from the Outer Banks. Now, it is a very wealthy island. It is a private island, which is, I understand why they said that in the movie, but or in the show. But there's a lot of incorrect stuff there, and after about... It might have been more than five minutes. It may have been like 20 minutes of one episode, and then uh, that's about all I've seen of it. Yeah, Just like DC, every movie shot here, when they're driving, you're like, that's not possible. And the Pentagon is in Virginia. Not yeah, <laughs> yeah right. that's, it's, it's a lot of inaccuracies in it and stuff like that. I just It seems more like a, a teen-type show. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Last question. I need a story that you had to have been there to believe. Oh, let me think here. I'm sure I can come up with some pretty quickly if I, if I thought about it. But um, all right, here's a funny one. The other day, got had a guy and his uh, his nephew. We were out fishing um, down near Bald Head Island. He was casting. It was a super windy day. We had switched to spinning gear because his nephew was young, and we were throwing bait and just to kind of save the day. And <laughs> it was we were sitting there talking while he was casting, and all of a sudden he he threw a cast, and we heard this really loud screech or squeal and we looked up and there was a seagull falling from the sky so just by sheer luck or just coincidence actually not luck on the bird's part that one ounce at egg weight and that bait fish on the hook hit that bird in the air and it looked like somebody had actually shot the bird the bird was falling upside down to the water so fortunately for the bird the line just wrapped around his wing and we were able to get him in through a oh, towel over Unhooked him. Yeah, we, we actually got him back in the water. Okay. Uh, we got him back in the air, I mean, after we got the line untangled. But just stuff like that, it's like you got to be there to see it. I mean, there wasn't a bird anywhere around that we could see, and he just randomly knocked a random bird out of the sky. Just, just little funny. things like that. But you do see a lot of cool stuff on the water that it's kind of hard to explain to someone unless you see it. I mean, I've right. seen sea turtles eating horseshoe crabs. I've seen sharks eating other sharks, just stuff like that. Cool. All right, Novocaine, where can listeners find you online to book a trip? So my website is uh, sightfishnc.com, so like Sightfish North Carolina. And then as far as like on like social media, I'm, I'm kind of bad about keeping up with posts on, on my Facebook business page and Instagram, but it, Instagram is Captain, C-A-P-T underscore Allen, A-L-L-E-N. And then my Facebook business page is Sightfish NC. 
Fantastic. All right, dude, I'll be in touch. We're coming down in, uh, on the 20th, so we'll find you. We'll drop yeah, some good. sauce and some other sundries. And absolutely, time, we'll get up and have a drink. And... On the wall. Yeah, absolutely. All right, dude, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, dude, thank you again. Thank you. Have a good evening. Have a good. You too. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king. But who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver. Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.